Let us pray. God, in this season of, of waiting, of watching, of hoping, take our ears and hear through them, take our minds and think through them, and take our hearts and set them on fire for Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. One of my favorite uh, Christmas songs is uh, the Cherry Tree Carol. It's a very old song. It dates back into the 1400s. Um, more recently, it's been covered by people like Emmy Lou Harris and Sting, which I realize dates me just a little. But you might be familiar with the tune. It sounds like, it sounds like this. And if I was to sing it, I would sound like Sting, but I'm not going to sing it. But it begins like this. When Joseph was an old man, an old man was he. He married Virgin Mary, the Queen of Galilee. He married Virgin Mary, the Queen of Galilee. And the second verse is where the song gets its title. Joseph and Mary walked through an orchard green. There were cherries and berries as thick as might be seen. There were cherries and berries as thick as might be seen. And then the story picks up. Mary said to Joseph, so meek and so mild, Joseph, gather me some cherries, for I am with child. Joseph, gather me for some cherries, for I am with child. And then in verse 4, Joseph flew in anger. In anger flew he. Let the father of the baby gather cherries for thee. Let the father of the baby gather cherries for thee. And then the carol goes on. It's a winsome beautiful piece. It's also a very earthy song because it carries in it the mystery of the incarnation, but it also carries Joseph's very human anger. You know, we have venerated and valorized St. Joseph such that it's easy to sentimentalize, uh, to spiritualize the story of the birth of Jesus, but it is a story about people like us, people like you and people like me. And it begins... As we heard, now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way when his mother, Mary, had been engaged to Joseph. Mary and Joseph were engaged, uh, which back in the day meant something a little different than it does now. Now when two people get engaged, it's the promise that they're going to get married sooner or later. But back then, it, was much, it meant much more. In the older versions, if you remember hearing this maybe in Sunday school when you were a kid, at least if you're my age, uh, Mary was betrothed. Now, Mary was likely in her late teens. That would have been common uh, back then. And Joseph was not the old man that the carol makes him out to be. Joseph was probably just about 10 years older than her. But to be engaged, to be betrothed, was actually a legal arrangement. It was like, like being married. It's like the papers had been signed and filed with the county clerk here in Multnomah County. But they didn't live together right away. Instead, the man, patriarchal society, would set up a household. And then once everything was ready, the community would gather and celebrate with a wedding. But in that in-between time, the cultural expectation, the legal expectation, was that they would be faithful to each other. But before they lived together, Mary was found to be with child. And for Joseph... For Mary, for their families, for their community, you can imagine the shock, the shame, the fear, the dismay 
anguish, the embarrassment. I imagine there were some knowing smirks in the community. I imagine there were some wagging tongues. And sometimes in sermons on this passage, it's pointed out that in the Torah, in the book of Deuteronomy, it's written that if a betrothed young woman lies with another man, that both of them are to be taken out and be stoned. And so there's the intimation that Mary's life was in danger, that she might be killed. But Amy Jill Levine, who I introduced or referenced last week, she's a Jewish scholar who teaches at a Christian seminary at Vanderbilt University. She pushes back on the assumption that Judaism is that rigid or that brutal. And she points out that stonings don't actually happen in the scriptures and that the rabbinic tradition ever since has worked hard against the death penalty. So it might actually be that Mary would have been surrounded by a caring community, might have been surrounded by a compassionate family, uh, but it might not be so. I mean, we can get pretty judgy at times. This is a precarious moment. What will Mary do? Well, next week we're going to hear Luke's account of this story that focuses on, uh, from, from Mary's vantage point. So we're going to maybe save that question for next week. Matthew tells the story from Joseph's vantage point. What will Joseph do? And to be clear, Joseph is angry. The cherry tree carol gets that part of the story right. We tend to tone it down a little bit. In fact, in, uh, in this version, this translation, verse 20, uh, is translated as, uh, but just when he had resolved to do this. But in actuality, a more literal translation would be, while Joseph fumed over this. Joseph was steamed. Well, what will Joseph do with his anger? What would I do? What would you do? When you have no idea what's happened or what is happening, you're fuming, you're uncertain, maybe a little afraid. Or what to do when you have a good idea what happened, you just can't believe that it's happening to you. Well, Matthew tells us what Joseph did. Joseph made plans to dismiss her quietly. He made plans to get a decree of divorce. They'd go their own ways. They'd get on with their own lives. Joseph wasn't going to make a bad situation worse. Whatever anger or jealousy or disappointment he might have felt, maybe he did love her. Maybe he had looked forward to a life together in this arranged marriage. Whatever, whatever impulse he had felt, whatever impulse any of us might have felt, when we're hurt, you know, we have a temptation to want to hurt other people, to make them feel our own pain. Whatever he felt, Joseph was unwilling to expose her to public disgrace. And when I hear that, it makes me want to be more like Joseph, more understanding and gracious, more kind, more compassionate. And it also makes me wonder how he did it, how I can be more like Joseph. Well, Matthew points to the answer. Matthew tells us that Joseph was a righteous man. Joseph was a just man. And if you are here last week, that's the same description we heard of Zechariah and Elizabeth in Luke 1. They were both described as being righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But the thing is righteousness uh, or justice isn't just following rules. If he had wanted, Joseph could have used the rules of the religion to shame Mary. Uh, certainly the church has done a lot of that through the centuries. If he had wanted, Joseph could have used the social norms, the cultural norms. He could have used his own patriarchal power to harm Mary. And he would have been within his rights, but he didn't. In the scriptures, 
So the Torah, the precepts of the law, the stories that Jesus told, the letters the apostles wrote, the scriptures are meant to point us toward a way of living that is righteous, that is just, that's holy, that's whole-making. But more than living by the letter or more by following the rules or being religious, it's the spirit that brings it to life. The same spirit that had overshadowed Mary and created new life in her, that same spirit had been working in Joseph, creating righteousness and grace and compassion and giving birth to an unexpected future that changed everything for all of us. That same spirit can bring to life understanding and kindness and mercy and hope in us. You know, we're told that the spirit blows where it will. Spirit is not something to be captured or bottled up or managed. It's a mystery the way that the Spirit called creation into being. It's a mystery the way the Spirit works to create new life in us. The only thing that I know to do is to be expectant. The only thing I know to do is watch for those moments when the ordinariness of life is suddenly infused with what can only be described as the holy. The only thing I know to do is listen for wisdom, whatever the source might be, but wisdom that as soon as you hear it, it rings true deep in your soul. The only thing I know to do is to be attentive to the opportunities that come along, opportunities that you couldn't have imagined, but you realize they are exactly right. The only thing I know is to be ready for the Spirit when it blows us toward forgiveness, toward mercy, toward equity, toward peace. We tend to see whatever we're looking for, whatever we expect to see. And I know that if I'm not being attentive to the Spirit, if I'm not expecting, if I'm not waiting and watching and praying and trusting, what I tend to see are the ways other people are wrong and the ways I can rightfully get what I got coming to me. I can tend to be indignant, judgmental, impatient, unforgiving. I'm a religious professional. I got a little holier than thou in me too. But the thing is, none of that can give birth to love or joy or peace. Joseph was a righteous man. Joseph was just. I want to be more like Joseph. I want to be more expectant, more attentive, more responsive to the Spirit. And if that was the end of the story, this would be a pretty good lesson. But it's not. Matthew goes on, just as Joseph had resolved to do this, while he fumed over this, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And it's hard enough to know what to do when you have no idea what's happened or what's happening, or you know it and you can't believe it's happening to you. But what to do when the only explanation you're given for what is happening is impossible? Joseph knows he's not the father. Now he's being told no one else is either. He's being told that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. If your parents ever set you down and gave you the sex talk, you know that's not how the birds and the bees do it. The angel Gabriel is asking Joseph to reconsider what is possible. And in Luke's account, the same angel Gabriel is going to go to Mary and say with God, nothing will be impossible. So what do we take to be possible? What do we take to be impossible? Now, if you've ever read the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, or if you've ever seen any of those films or watched any of the series that have been made, you know that Sherlock Holmes, the great detective, is fond of saying, when you've eliminated the impossible, 
then whatever remains, however improbable, must be true. But Gabriel's asking us not to eliminate the impossible. He's asking us to rethink what is possible. So what do you think? It's impossible to be in two places at once, isn't it? Except I'm here, and I'm actually on screens in places all over the city, and I'm going to be on screens later this week whenever somebody calls this up on YouTube. It's impossible to walk on water. We know that. Well, unless it freezes, then an elephant can walk on water. It's impossible to turn water into wine. That's one of those miracles Jesus did that's hard to imagine, um, except we do it every spring when we water the uh, vineyards and every fall when we crush the grapes. I suppose we could ask, is it impossible for God to create a rock so big that God couldn't lift it? Except those kind of tautological conundrums are what gives theology a bad name. I think better questions might be, is it possible that God could change the world through a teenage girl in Bethlehem rather than through Herod or the high priests or all the power players at the center of the universe nine miles away in Jerusalem? Is it possible that God could call awfully ordinary people, fishermen, tax collectors, women who own small businesses, and have them lead the way toward the beloved community? Is it possible, even though the newspapers and the history books make it seem highly improbable, is it possible that the long arc of history bends toward love, that it bends toward God's holy and just peace? Can we believe, like Joseph and Mary, that with God nothing will be impossible? That it is not impossible for us to do God's will on earth as in heaven? That it is not possible for us to share the gifts that God has given for us all, our daily bread, so that no one is left hungry and everyone has what they need to thrive? That it is not impossible for us to forgive the people who've hurt us? That it is not impossible for us to love our enemies? Can we believe that the love of God, the love that's at the center of the, of the self-giving relationships of the Holy Trinity, the love that runs through all of creation, can we believe that that love was born to us in Bethlehem? Can we believe that the love of God that was in Jesus can save us from our sins? Can we believe that Emmanuel has come to us, that the love of God will always be with us? And we believe that the love of God makes that kind of life together possible. In this cherry tree carol, uh, Joseph in anger says, let the father of the baby gather cherries for me. But it goes on, the next verse, uh, then up spoke baby Jesus from in Mary's womb, bend down the tallest branches that my mother might have some bend down the tallest branches that my mother might have some. And then the last verse, and whoever wrote this parable, I think, or wrote, wrote this song has kind of an impish sense of humor, because in the last verse it says, and bend down the tallest branches, it touched Mary's hand, cried she, oh, look thou, Joseph, I have cherries by command. Oh, look thou, Joseph, I have cherries by command. <laughs> may we be more like Joseph and Mary, and may we learn to trust that with God, Nothing will be impossible. Amen.
Cherry. 